Well, we're back in the Gospel of John today. Um, we started in the Gospel of John uh, right after Easter, uh, back in April, and uh, we just have taken seven weeks off of that uh, as we went through uh, three weeks of our Advent, then we have our, our end-of-the-year say-so service, and then we had our three-week uh, New Year's vision series. Uh, now, we're only going to be in John actually for the next three weeks, and we're going to take another break from it. Uh, most of you who are on that email list know that uh, I'm going to be taking a, a four-week sabbatical uh, with my family. Uh, during that time, Pastor Casey and Pastor Tyler are going to be leading us through a sermon series uh, called uh, Fighting for Unity, um, looking at uh, love and just the, the, the way that we fight for unity. Uh, and so I'll be uh, gone for four weeks uh, in, in two weeks. I'll be gone for four weeks. Uh, and so uh, the sabbatical, for those of you guys who don't know uh, a little bit about what that is, uh, it's, it's typically a time kind of historically where churches uh, would give, uh, you know, the pastor uh, some time to go be refreshed, to uh, be replenished, uh, to seek the Lord in different ways. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, it's been, I've been in ministry for, you know, 20-something years, whatever, and I've never taken one and leading the church for eight years. So uh, especially after a year like we had last year, it's a, it's a good time for my family and I to be able to go and do that. And so uh, if you want to know more about that, what uh, this sabbatical is, I'm kind of hoping, thinking is going to look like. You can email me as well because I did send out uh, through our email updates uh, a video just on what my sabbatical is, um, kind of what, what came about and how it's hopefully going to go. Uh, but you can email me. I can, I can forward you that link. Uh, you can watch through that. Uh, but today we find ourselves in uh, chapter 9 of the Gospel of John. Uh, this is, I think, our 24th sermon uh, in the Gospel of John. And we're in chapter 9. So this is a big section. Uh, I'd encourage you to get your Bible out to read along with us because I'm going to read through the whole section, even though we're not going to get through uh, every single little bit. We won't highlight every single you know, uh, uh, statement or word or phrase. Uh, but it's a fantastic story about Jesus' interaction uh, with more people here. Uh, the story begins with a big question from the disciples that I want to summarize a little bit before jumping into the specific context. And the question that the disciples are asking is when, essentially is when bad things happen to us, is it because of our sin? Is it because of sin? Is there something that we did that has brought about the hardships that we're going through? Is God punishing us? Is he mad at us or disappointed with us? And if you've ever asked the question, why is this happening to me? Why is my life going the way it is? If you've ever asked that question, then no doubt you've given thought to this. Is God mad at me? Did I do, is this a result of my sin? Is there something that I need to repent of? And in the story today, Jesus happens upon a blind man and his disciples wanting to learn about God and sin. They're asking him questions. This is good. It's good that they're asking him questions. And what I would actually call really kind of a fairly innocent question in their desire to learn. But Jesus' answer that we're going to see today is no doubt one that actually opens up their blind eyes. That's what his answer really is going to do, giving them a fuller, bigger, and better picture of who God is, even amidst trials and suffering. Uh, so I'd like to pray as we uh, open to John 9. And ask the Lord even to open our blind eyes, uh, the, the blind parts of our eyes that we still have, 
ways that we see things or assume things in our life. We want God's word to reshape those things, sharpen our vision. Heavenly Father, we come to you uh, like the disciples, uh, wanting to learn. We want to learn more about you, learn more about why things go on in our life the way that they do. And God, right now, even I'm thinking about so many people in our church family that are going through or have recently gone through a lot of hardships. Set aside even the, the hardships that we've all been going through this past year, with isolation and those types of things, but even just the, the more specific to each person and family, there's just a lot of hurt, a lot of confusion, a lot of pain in a lot of people's lives right now. There's a lot of tragedy, a lot of tears. And I know that with that comes a lot of questions. And so, God, I would hope and pray that this text today and some of the other ones we're going to be looking into would bring us helpful perspective, would grow our maturity and understanding of who you are and how you work in our lives, that you'd teach us to be less presumptuous and more trusting. more humble. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that your word reveals all these things about you, that we're not just uh, told to just go and live and figure it out for ourselves, but you give us your word as the lamp unto our feet. So help us, Lord. Help this word find a home in our hearts. And the Holy Spirit, that you would lead us into this truth today. We need you. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, this is a big section. We're going to go through the whole of, of chapter 9, but I'm going to read through it all to and kind of give some clarifying comments as I go, because we're not going to tease out every single nuance in the story, but we do want to get the big picture. Um, so first of all, this is right after the Feast of Booths. This has been seven weeks since we remember this context here. Uh, right after the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem, at this feast, uh, Jesus has already declared that he's the light of the world, that he's the bread of life, and he's already made the Jewish leaders there quite upset with his claims, specifically his claim that he has been sent by God. And so now here in chapter 9, verse 1, here's what it says. Now, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. But Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in this world, I am the light of the world. Now having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, Yeah, it's he. Others said, No, but he looks just like him. And he kept saying, No, I'm the man. So they said to him, 
then how were your eyes opened? So he answered, well, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. He's like, I don't know. I was blind up until now. How do I know where he went? It's kind of a funny question. So in verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So now Jesus, he's working on the Sabbath again. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, Jesus, he's not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. Remember, the Pharisees had 39 extra laws about the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who's a sinner, so if this Jesus really is a sinner, if he really is not sent from God, then how can he do such signs? So they're kind of thinking logically about it. And so then there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? The blind man said, he's a prophet. He's got to be a prophet. He's got to be from God. So the Jews didn't believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight. So they'd already made up their mind. There's no way that Jesus really can be from God. So rather than face facts before them, they already have their, their presupposed uh, thoughts on this. They're saying, there's no way Jesus is from God so clearly there must be another answer. So because of this, remember, as I said last week, we don't respond to facts. We respond to our interpretation of facts, right? So even though the facts are before these guys, they're not responding to the facts that this guy was born blind. They're responding to their interpretation of the facts. Well, yeah, he was born, but there must be something else. There's no way that Jesus could actually be from God and that he actually did this. So they figured there's got to be something else. So what they did is they called, going back to the text in verse 18, they called the parents of the man who'd received his sight, and they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then can he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son, and he was definitely born blind. But now he sees, and we don't know how. We don't know how this has happened. We don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Now, his parents said these things because they actually feared the Jews, is what the text here says. Because the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confesses Jesus to be the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. So his parents are going, yeah, this is our son. He was definitely born blind. But they're going, yeah, we don't really know who did it because they don't want to say it was Jesus because then they would get in trouble. So they're saying, we don't really know who did it. Why don't you just go ask him? He's old enough. <laughs> so they're kind of pawning off. So they're they're agreeing that, yep, this is him, but they didn't want to say because they feared man more than fearing God. So therefore, his parents said, ask him, he's of age. So now even with more facts in front of them, they've got the testimony now of his parents. parents saying, this is him. He was born blind. Now he sees. But they're still looking for a satisfactory answer. They're still looking to fit their narrative. They don't like this. They keep getting more and more facts, but they kind of keep moving the goalpost. They're looking for something to agree with what they already believe. So now in verse 24, for the second time, they called the man who'd been blind and said to him, give glory to God. This sounds like a reasonable request. Oh, give glory to God. 
But look what they are saying. They're saying give glory to God in the way that we think that God should be given glory. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. Right, so they've heard the testimony of this, the, the man. They've heard the testimony of his parents. They still aren't satisfied. So they go back to the man again. They say, look, you need to give God glory. This Jesus is a sinner. They are so hard-hearted with this. They won't stand down. And he answered them, whether he's a sinner, I have no idea. I don't know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How do you open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? What do you want from me? And I love this, his response. Do you want to also become his disciples? <laughs> I wonder if he was being sarcastic or totally just naive. I don't know what was going on, but I love that he said that to them. And verse 28, they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, Jesus, we don't know where he comes from. And the man answered, well, this is such an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. He says, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners, so now he's using their argument against them. You say he's a sinner? Well, explain this then. Explain it. We know that God doesn't, use, doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, God does listen to him. So he's going, look, here's the facts. God doesn't listen to sinners, but if you worship and obey him, then he listens. So in my eyes, in my mind, I'm thinking this guy must be sent from God. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin and you want to teach us. And they cast him out. I'm going to stop here for now. Going back into the kind of early part of this interaction, we see Jesus' disciples making an assumption. This man is blind because either he sinned or his parents sinned. Kind of a little side note here, a little extra kind of from the text here. This is, this is a false dichotomy. It's actually a, a common fallacy called the, the either-or fallacy or the fallacy of the false dilemma. What this does is it deduces complicated topics complicated observations down to only two opposite options and assumes that there's only two options. You're either this or you're that and there's nothing in between. And if you're not that, then you might be this. Does this sound familiar at all in our news and media and social media today? We, play, we see this play out quite commonly, especially in politics and in social media, in political memes and things like that. You're either for this and if you're not for this, then you must be for this other thing. It's all or nothing. No room for anything else. And in many, many, many situations, this is a very bad way of thinking. It's based on false or incomplete assumptions about a situation. Now, back to the story, though. They assume this man is blind clearly because either his parents sinned, or he sinned, and there must be no other option. There's nothing else that could possibly be going on. It's one or the other. Now, this type of thinking in this context, we're thinking about how God interacts with us and how sin affects us. This is classic legalism right here. A belief that God helps those who help themselves. 
that anyone who's struggling or is suffering or going through some kind of hardship or pain or brokenness must have brought it on themselves. They must have deserved it. Job's friends thought the same thing. They said, you must have some secret sin, Job, because what's going on in your life is crazy. And they're trying to help. But it's a false assumption. So let's look more clearly at what Jesus says here. So going back to verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but here's what Jesus says, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's why he was born blind. He was born blind so that the work of God would be displayed in him. In other words, there was a purpose, a divine purpose in why this man was born blind. We don't know how old he was. Was he 17? Was he 28? Was he 40? We don't know, but he's gone many, many years. He's of age. He's an adult. He's gone many, many years blind, begging. And it was for a specific purpose that God would reveal his work in this man. No doubt this man had no idea that that's what it was about. His parents didn't have any idea this was about. They're probably just lamenting their whole life that their son is born blind. This man is begging. He has no idea that God's doing something in his life. All he knows is he's blind. So there's a specific purpose for his blindness that has nothing to do with sin. Now, before we go any further into the story, it has to be said also that there are indeed many times, many instances in our life where sin does bring consequences. So just because Jesus kind of brings this third option doesn't mean that the first two are illegitimate. There are many times that our sin brings consequences. Sometimes they're kind of built in sort of natural sequence of events, you know, like laziness can lead to bad grades. Adultery can lead to losing your whole family. So some things are natural consequences of sin. And there's other times we see in God's word where hardships are even brought about more maybe what you call supernatural means. In other words, there wasn't like a natural progression or connection, but a hardship was brought sort of out of the blue, so to speak, in your life from the Lord as a consequence. And those are very difficult to discern. Those are probably almost impossible. Something seemingly unconnected uh, there's sometimes really no way you can really know until maybe after the fact, after you have brought, been brought through it and you look back and you see how God worked out something in your life. But in the moment, those are very difficult to see. And I'd probably even kind of counsel you to not try to figure those ones out. The natural ones are easy to figure out. I got bad grades because I was lazy. That's kind of obvious. But some of these other things, sometimes you won't know those things until later. You, go, you look back and go, I see now why God did that. I see where I was in sin. But in the moment, I would almost counsel you not to try to even figure that out because you'll drive yourself crazy. And you probably won't even know until later, if at all. But there are instances in the scriptures that do get us to see that that is also a possibility. But we're going to focus today on this third option that Jesus gives us. See, the disciples' question isn't completely actually ignorant because it's true that certain sufferings can be the result of sin. So it's not that they were way off, it's just that they were incomplete, they were short-sighted, and it revealed their faulty assumptions about hardship and suffering. It also revealed their short-sightedness of God's wisdom and sovereignty. There was a third option for why this man was born blind, but for them, that wasn't even in the cards. 
And for all of us here, we need to be reminded that as it pertains to our hardships, our sufferings, our trials, this third option is a very, very real option for us. Very important option for us to consider. Jesus says that this man's suffering was because God had a plan to display the work of God in him. That there was a very specific purpose in his suffering. And we're going to see the same type of language in just two chapters. In chapter 11, when Lazarus passes away. I'll give you a little preview here. John eleven three, 3. Sisters of Lazarus sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he, Lazarus, whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God. This illness is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, of course, Lazarus did die, but only temporarily. The illness, and we'll see this when we get to chapter 11, was purposed by God to put the works of God on display so that Jesus would be glorified. Now, so the ministry of Jesus that we're seeing in the Gospel of John, while not necessarily explaining the specifics of why every difficulty in your life happens, right? God's Word won't tell you exactly why each and every little hardship happens, the purpose of all of it. But the ministry of Jesus does give us confident hope and trust that there is reason for it, that there is a very important third option or reason for why we go through what we go through. And like I said, no doubt this man had no idea that there was some kind of work of God that Jesus said would be displayed in him. And we also, like this man, we don't have the luxury of knowing why certain hardships or sufferings fall upon us. We don't have that luxury. We are not omniscient. We can't know why I'm going through this particular thing in this moment. That answer is going to be elusive for you. And like I said, you're going to drive yourself crazy trying to figure out why I'm going through this. Now, in God's grace, he might give you little hints and insights into it, but that's, that's on him. But more than likely, we're not going to be given the specifics of why we're going through this or that. But we do have the luxury of having God's word, having these stories, and having the truths that they contain. We have these words of Jesus as he exposes some of the false assumptions we have. The assumptions we have about life, about suffering, about sin, and about God and how he operates. We now have the ability, maybe not to know why exactly we're going through what we're going through precisely, but we do have the ability to put reasonable trust and faith and hope in God's work and in his ways. We do have that. We do have that luxury because we have his word. And through these words of Christ in this story and other promises, and his words, some of which we're going to look at this morning, we can walk confidently, even if weakly. Right? I, I want you to know that even when you're feeling weak and beaten down, like you got nothing left, you can still actually have confidence in the Lord. Even when you, f- you feel like you've got nothing, you can, you can walk in a, in a, I'll call it a, a weak confidence. I just mustard seed faith. Right? Having confidence, Lord, doesn't mean you're just walking around, taking charge of everything, feeling good about life. Now, you can have confidence in the Lord and trust in Him even when you are just beaten down. 
And that's what we can have. We can walk by faith, even a weak faith, when we don't have sight. Just like this blind man. Uh, Oz Guinness, a fantastic mind and theologian, um, also the great-great-grandson of the guy who started Guinness. <laughs> it's not why he's one of my favorites, but... Oz Guinness, um, in a, one of his books on suffering, he says, there's times... This is in your notes. You can follow along because it's a long quote. There are times when we see glimpses of God's way, but not enough to allow us to make true conclusions about what He is doing and why he's doing it. Yet, we can't resist jumping to conclusions anyway. Right? We, we know we're finite in our assessment of life, but yet it doesn't stop us from still making our conclusions. I know what God is doing. I know why he's doing this. He must be doing this. He must be doing that. We can't resist jumping to conclusions anyway. And then being insistent as well as inquisitive... So just like the disciples, insistent and inquisitive, we refuse to suspend our judgment. Because we insist. So we don't hold back our judgment, our assumptions, and our wrong conclusions so represent God that we end by doubting Him. So even though we know that we're not omniscient, we still insist upon our judgments and our wisdom. And so in the end, what we do is our conclusions misrepresent God and we end up doubting him rather than putting our trust in him. But if the Christian's faith is to be itself, if it's supposed to just be faith and let God be God at such times, our faith must suspend judgment and instead say, Father, I don't understand you, but I trust you. Now notice, Oz says, what this means. Christians do not say, I don't understand you at all, but I trust you anyway not a blind faith, but rather we say, I don't understand you in this situation, but I understand why I trust you anyway. Therefore, I can trust that you understand even though I don't. So I want to go through, kind of give some meat on those the bones of Oz Guinness's quote there, a bit of a rapid-fire look at some other scriptures that speak to the varied purposes in our suffering, the, the why we can trust him reasons, the reasons, as Oz Guinness says, that we know why we can trust God even when we don't understand. Now, it's important to note for us that though Jesus reveals this kind of third option, this third option really has many varied sub-purposes as possible reasons for our trials and our suffering. So he uses the phrase that the work of God would be displayed, but the work of God is quite an umbrella for lots of other types of works of God. So here's just a few. Again, you can follow in your notes, at least for the words there. The first is reliance. One of the works of God to be displayed in you is to teach you reliance. Uh, suffering is a call to, to trust God and not the temporary man-given gifts or power or fleeting comforts and security of this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We wanted to die. Indeed, we felt that we received the sentence of death. Now, why did this come about in Paul's life? He tells us plainly. It was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
Church, it is only when you finally get to the end of yourself, it is then when you actually get to the beginning of Christ. Only when you get to the very end of yourself, you're at your wit's end, it is there that you get to the beginning of Christ. So sometimes your trials are to teach you how to really be in Christ, to rely on Him. Another one is righteousness. Suffering is the, the discipline of our loving Heavenly Father so that we come to share in His righteousness and His holiness. And remember that the English word discipline is from the same root as disciple. So God makes you into a disciple by discipline. When He disciplines us, that's Him discipling us. In Hebrews chapter 12, gives us this picture. The Lord disciplines the one that He loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. In verse 10, he disciplines us for our good. That we may share. Here's the reason why. Here's why he disciplines us. So that we can share in his holiness. It's for our own holiness, our growth in holiness. Now, at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. So it's a hardship. But later, later on, and this is what I'm saying, sometimes you don't notice this stuff till later, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. His discipline brings about righteousness in your life to those who have been trained by it. Discipline, sometimes trials, hardships, equip you and train you. They change you. Another one is strength. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. Peter says to a persecuted church, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After you've suffered for a little while. Romans chapter 5. Paul says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces something. Suffering brings about something in your life. Hardship brings about things. What are those things it brings about? It produces endurance. And then endurance produces character. And character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. James chapter 1. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How about reward? Another reason why trials come in our life is to give us reward or to highlight reward. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. This suffering now is just going to make that glory even brighter, even better. A few verses later, Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Going back to James chapter 1, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive, he's going to receive something, the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And then Paul in 2 Corinthians, kind of the sister verse of Romans 8, 18, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is nothing compared to what we're going to receive. 
Another one is reminder. Our own suffering reminds us that God has sent His Son into this world to suffer so that our suffering wouldn't be God's condemnation upon us. We wouldn't see it as that, but purification. If we think that our suffering is because God's mad at us, then what does that say about Jesus' life? Was God mad at Him too? Right, do you see the connection there? So our suffering reminds us that God has sent His own Son so that in our own suffering we would know that this isn't about God's condemnation. If that was the case, then that means that He was condemning Jesus the time that He was reviled and spoken against. Philippians 3 verse 10 says, uh, Paul says that I may know Him, I know Jesus and the power of His resurrection and I might share in His sufferings. And lastly, under this umbrella of the third option is helping others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. Why? So that we can also then be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We go through our own afflictions so that when God comforts us, now we know how to comfort others. But if we don't go through things ourselves, we're not going to have empathy. We're not going to be patient. We're not going to be understanding. We're going to be frustrated and annoyed. Just, just get over it. Why are you whining? I'll give you something to cry about. We're going to act more like that. But we go through our own afflictions so that we can be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Now, these are just a few of the works of God that He could be doing in your life, in your time of suffering and trial. And keep in mind, too, church, that the gospel is spread through this world not primarily through the blessing and comforts that the world has to offer us, that when, when times are good, that's when the gospel shines the brightest in our lives. The gospel actually usually is the brightest through the faithful endurance of Christians who are going through suffering and trials. That's when the gospel is usually most beautifully put on display. The aroma of Christ has always been best put on display to a hopeless world by a church who displays its hope amidst suffering. That's usually how the gospel goes out the most, the best, the brightest. But that's a hard pill for us to swallow, especially, I think, as 21st century Americans. We're, we're kind of used to winning. We're used to being victorious and getting our way in things. We're very quick to complain when things don't go our way. We're not, we're not used to suffering. We're not used to hardship. We're kind of used to like instant access to happiness. Push a button, tap a notification. We, we kind of have instant happiness all the time. So when we don't have it, we're, we're kind of miserable people. We want answers now on why things aren't going on. We want that instant answer now. So we cling to many things, including making false assumptions like the disciples were doing, like the Pharisees are doing. We need something to make sense out of all the pain in our life, the, the, the hardships. We have to have everything explained to us. We want answers now. We're not content with just living by faith, trusting in God. No, we want answers. We, we demand and deserve answers. We have to know why things are happening. We want to make sense out of them, and we want, everything, we want to know that everything's going to be better somehow. And this is why we even get so enamored with 
even like we see today just with conspiracy theories and allow our faith to be hijacked by political narratives and the false comforts that politicians offer us. We get our hearts carried away by the, the winds of this world so easily because we want someone to have answers for us. Someone's got to deliver us from this suffering. And there already is a someone. But we don't like his answer. We don't like waiting and living in faith. We've got to have answers right now. We need something right now to appease our need. We don't trust or like the way that God is bringing about things in our life, in our world, in our society. So there must be some other answer that will result in the comfort and success and victory that we want. There's got to be another answer. We want explanations and something to put our hope in. And this is exactly the downfall of the Pharisees. For them, Jesus didn't fit their narrative. They couldn't just accept that Jesus was maybe actually truly sent by God. He was a threat to them. They wanted to maintain power, religiosity, the praise of man. He was a threat to them. And so when they were faced with facts, they kept denying it. So look back at verse 18 here. The Jews didn't believe that he had been blind and received his sight. So even with the, the man and the witnesses standing before them, they still thought there must be an explanation that is satisfactory to what we already believe. So they called the parents. They said, yes, this is him. This is our son. He's of age. Go ask him yourself. But yet even with more facts in front of them, they're still looking for a satisfactory answer, something to agree with what they already believe. They're blinded by their own self-righteousness, their own religious power and authority. In verse 24 again, the second time they called the man who'd been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And then the man makes this beautiful declaration. He says, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. What a declaration. This man couldn't give you much of a theological view of who Jesus was. He didn't know if he was a sinner or not. He didn't know how to respond to the arguments and the questioning, the Pharisees, the way they were setting a trap for him. Well, don't you want to be on the right side and glorify God? I know that's what you really want. This man is clearly a sinner. They're, they're trying to kind of gaslight him a bit. That rather than getting tripped up by their twisting, he just simply professed what he knew to be true. I was blind, and now I see. And so looking at verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. So he heard that what happened. And so Jesus went and found the man, and he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He's like, I don't know who you're talking about, but that sounds great. And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it's he who is speaking to you. Jesus is saying, it's, it's me. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And the man worshipped Jesus. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see. And those who already see may become blind. Now some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, oh, are we also blind? I, I know you're talking about us right here. And Jesus said to them, if you are blind you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. So Jesus ends this conversation, interaction with a few kind of enigmatic sayings here. He says, I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see 
may become blind. He's saying those who are poor in spirit, those who are broken down, those who are humbled, they know they're sick, they know they're in need, I came to save them. Those are the ones I came to save, the ones who know that they are needy. But those who think they're fine, oh, I already see fine. They've got their act together. They have no needs. The other people, they have needs. But we see clearly, well, he's saying they're actually the blind ones. Of course, this is what offends the Pharisees. How dare you insinuate that we're blind? Look at us. We know God's word. We're morally upright. We offer up all of our prayers. But Jesus says the very fact that you think that you see clearly and you have no blind spots and no need for correction, you're, you're unteachable, you're stubborn, you're blind guides who strain out a gnat and then swallow a camel, well, that means your guilt is still very much alive in you. But he says, I came into this world that those who do not see may see. Church, I can't tell you why your life is going the way that it's going. I don't know why all this stuff is happening in our worlds. I don't know why certain things have befallen you and your family, why you're going through the hardships and tragedies that you're going through. But I can tell you that Jesus came into this world to save and to bring healing to those who know that they can't see, those who are broken, those who are hurting, those that are in need. By Psalm 34, the song we sang earlier, says, The Lord is near the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. He's come to redeem you, to purchase you from a, a life of hopelessness, a future that is, apart from him, just cold and empty. He's come to give life and give it abundantly. And I don't know the exact reason why you suffer, but he does. He does know why he is working this in your life. And he himself also suffered. You're not alone in this. He also suffered. And he suffered for you. He suffered for you. He came to this earth to suffer in your place. To take on the suffering, the punishment that you most definitely did deserve. Right? The, the suffering you're going through right now might not be because of your sin. It might be a totally other reason. But the suffering you did deserve, he took that upon himself. He was reviled and spit upon and abandoned and mocked and beaten and tortured and eventually killed. And he did this to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. And you might spend your life physically blind or have... Maybe you have a tragic past or an uncertain future that you have a fear over or you've endured loss or poor health, but you can have abundant life because of what Christ has come to do for you. And I can't tell you why exactly your life is how it is, but I come here every single Sunday, church, to tell you exactly why you can trust Christ through it all. Like this blind man, I'm here to say every single Sunday to tell you the one thing that I do know that at one time I was blind, but now I see. To quote Paul, who now is for me as the, what I call myself the CRO of our church, the chief uh, uh, reminding officer. I'm the chief reminding officer of this church. To quote Paul, I decided to do nothing among you, Life Mission Church, except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all I know. I can't tell you all the other answers of your life, but I know this. Jesus Christ was crucified for you. Later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Now I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, 
in which you stand and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Church, we're going to always continue to keep the main thing, the main thing in our church. And this main thing is that it's what gives us the ability to endure when things don't go our way, when suffering and trials come, when tragedy strikes and confusion overwhelms us, when we don't have the answers. And we don't have to have the answers. We don't have to have some other assurances or reasons. We don't have to put our faith in empty promises of politicians or anything else. We don't have to know every single reason for why every single thing happens in our life because we have decided to know and put our hope in nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified for us. This is what we stand upon. It's what saves us. It's what we hold fast to. This is of first importance to us and what gives us reason to trust him even when we don't understand him. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. I'm going to close with three verses to give us some kind of final uh, hope confidence for why we can trust Christ when things don't make sense. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. That's one of those promises that don't come in those cute little promises of God books, right, that you go through to encourage. You don't run across the one, you will have tribulation in this world. Oh, I skipped that day, right? But this is a promise that in this world, you will have tribulation. But he says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In Romans 8, 35, he says, Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can tribulation do this? No. Can distress? No. Persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, none of those things. We're more than conquerors. And then finally in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, we have this great promise of our future. It says that he, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you, um, really I would say uh, naive like the disciples, or as uh, Os Guinness has described, uh, we insist upon our own observations, our own assumptions, our own judgments. We know we're not omniscient, but yet it doesn't stop us from voicing our very sure opinions on what's happening and why it's happening. And although I think the disciples were quite innocent in their questioning, inquisitive, and we want to have a, a fuller, bigger picture, and we thank you that we have your word to give us that. And we don't want to be like the Pharisees who have made up our minds. We know the right answer to every situation. 
I mean, look and go after the, the, the narrative that fits what we already think. We end up judging other people. We, we see what they're going through. And we make our judgments, and we're convinced. The disciples, I, I think, at least were open to... I mean, they were asking Jesus. They wanted to learn, but the Pharisees didn't want to learn. They already knew. They were stuck in their ways. And we don't want to be like that, Lord. We don't want to be insistent on being sure of knowing the things that we just, we just really can't know for sure. We want to be humble and teachable. And God, I want to ask that you would help us uh, and those in our lives that are going through what is oftentimes just an, an immeasurable pain and suffering hardship and loss and there's, there's a lot going on right now in our lives many people and names are going through my mind right now as I think of all the, the brokenness the trials the pain the hurt of a number of things as your word says various different trials some are because of sin, some are not because of sin. But all of it's real. All of it is real pain. It's real anguish. And I trust that you are near the brokenhearted. I trust that you do have some kind of plan in it. And I don't presume to know what that plan is. Maybe it's one of these five or six things that I listed out. Maybe it's something else. But though we might not know why we're going through something, we do know why we can trust you. You have not held back anything from us, not even your own son. And Jesus, you came to this earth and you suffered in our place. You suffered for us. And so we have every reason to trust you even when we don't understand. You have proven your love and dedication and long-suffering for us. We have no reason to doubt you. But we'll come up with reasons. Because in our pharisaical minds, we, we still kind of think we're omniscient. We're all wise. But we have no reason to doubt you. You've proven your love for us. You've, you've, you went to the cross. You died in our place. Help us. And we say we believe, but help us in our unbelief even if it's just the the weakest bit of faith or trust we just we ask for that when we feel like we have nothing give us even just that mustard seed faith to put one foot in front of the next to trust in the light of your word when our path seems so dark we thank you lord for your great patience towards us, that you don't give up on us. We ask all these things in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen.